we're trying to do the best that we can to deal with the situation. I just wanted to give a little um, introduction before Daniela takes over, just from a Torah perspective. Um, the fact that we have to cancel school and um, you know, children aren't going to be learning Torah in, in, a, in, a normal, in a normal setting, the fact that as of this moment, anyone over 60 cannot attend shul or anyone who's in compromised health, and it looks like it's just a, a matter of short time until we may have to close down the shul uh, totally. I mean, it really kind of fi- flies in the face of what we all know, as we say in the Machser on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Ushashuva, Ushafila, Utsudaka, Avir, Nisroa, Hagazera, that the way to deal with a harsh decree is by doing Teshuva and doing Tefila, by davening and giving Tzedakah. Well, we can all give Tzedakah and we can t- continue to increase our Tzedakah. Tefila now is uh, something that is uh, in some, on some level been taken away from us because we are told that the uh, most perfect Tefila is a Tefila that is done with a community when we have a minion. There are certain prayers that cannot be said without a minion, like Kaddish, like Kedusha. The Torah is not laid without um, a minion. Mourners that have to say Kaddish, if they don't have a shul, they can't say Kaddish. So it really compromises, if you will, uh, our chance at utilizing the tool of tefillah uh, to try to avert this gezerah, this harsh decree. I, I have another way of looking at it, and that is that that Hashem is giving us right now a chance uh, to focus on our tefillah. I'm speaking more to the men than to the women because the women during the course of the week are davening themselves anyway at home. But the men tend to come to shul, of course, and, and when a man davens at home uh, without a minion, the davening does not tend to be as powerful as when he is bolstered by, you know, uh, all of the sounds of tefillah of everyone else and the fact that it is a tefillah of a tzibar. I think Hashem is giving us men the opportunity to focus in, as we're diving at home, uh, against the walls of our living room or study, and, 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 and to try to be mechazik our tefillah, to focus in, and to utilize this time to be the very best that we can in davening. These are the ways that a Jew uh, deals with a, a tzorah. None of us in our lifetime have, has ever encountered anything like this. The closest thing to my mind, the sense of fear, perhaps even panic, uh, was 9-11. Those of us who remember 9-11, the day, uh, the day of, the days following, uh, you know, many people were afraid to go on the street. Who knows what lurches in the background? And so uh, we turned our eyes heavenward and we dove into Hashem to revert uh, this crisis. Chazal tell us, that when these kinds of difficult times come to the world, it is cause or it is for the purpose of the Jew to look inward and try to rectify our ways. So uh, we're going to do everything we possibly can to protect ourselves. The mitzvah of Ushmartem Seichem, that we need to protect our health, that is the highest ideal. And in Yiddishkeit, it, it, it's, it's just a primary compelling imperative that we have to do whatever we can to protect ourselves and to protect those around us. Unfortunately, this is all new to us, and many of us seem to be lulled into a sense of security that, you know, there's hardly been any 
incidence of the coronavirus in St. Louis and St. Louis County. But as we'll hear from Daniela, uh, it's just a matter of time, and we have to do whatever we can preemptively uh, to protect ourselves as best we can. At the same time, we're going to be very practical and very pragmatic, but let us not, again, lose sight of the fact that we have Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in Heaven, who's looking towards us to respond appropriately by giving special amounts of tzedakah at this time, to try in our hearts to identify those areas of life that we can improve, that's teshuva and tzedakah, you know, and, and tefillah and davening and strengthening our davening, which, again, which will be, uh, will be a task. Um, I also thought that these kinds of speeches that I give around Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and I always say that there is no inertia. We have to daven for a good year, for a gebenched year, and the fact that we had Parnassah last year or good health last year doesn't guarantee that we will have it after Rosh Hashanah. I didn't expect that we'd be speaking like this not even a half a year after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Again, we're being challenged. Everything that we have taken for granted all of our financial security, our health, everything that we take for granted is right now, all of that is thrown topsy-turvy. And in a sense, it's we're at Na'ila again. We're at Na'ila. We're davening for our lives. We're davening for the safety of our families, of our loved ones, of our community, of all of Kla Yisrael, of all mankind. And so in that vein, as we approach these next several weeks, let us not lose sight of the fact that we do have a prescribed way to avert this crisis through the teshuva, through the tefillah, through the tzedakah, and know that the Rebbeinu Shalom is the answer to all of our sorrows. We should look towards Shemayim, and let us be mechazik one another. Those of you who might have questions on any areas of hashkafa, you're free to call me, to talk to me. I, I uh, sense that this will not be the only phone conference that we're going to have. It's a start. Follow the emails that the shul sends, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get through this together. We're a strong community. We are, we've been through a lot over the past uh, number of years, especially over the past year. There's been some uh, unfortunate losses in the community, but we come together. We're mechazik. We strengthen one another, and uh, may all of our tefillos hit the mark, and may the Rebundashalim bring a swift end to this horrible infectious disease so that our lives can go on and we can be healthy and be able to serve Hashem in, in a more perfect way um, without all of these concerns hanging over us. Again, thank you very much for joining the call, and I'll hand it back to Daniela. Thank you, Rabbi Greenblatt. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Um, I just wanted to thank you so much for your, your leadership, your guidance. We are so privileged to have you as our love to speak to us tonight and to give us security and safety. Thank you. So um, thank you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Daniela Hermelin, and I'm a pathologist that works at St. Louis University Hospital. And I'm integrally involved right now in the COVID virus testing at our hospital, as well as overseeing the transfusion medicine service. So it's something that I've been actively a part of since uh, we were, we knew about the first case or when it was reported in China. 
So I thought tonight it would be helpful for me to give you a background in the epidemiology of this virus, um, its timeline, its, its symptoms, its uh, infectivity rate, um, and how we should be protecting ourselves and um, where we should be going for treatment if necessary. So I'm hoping that I could speak to you. Um, it will take about 20, 25 minutes to cover all of this information. And I think that this will really help to provide you with the understanding of why certain measures have been taken through um, the public health services and why we're handling things um, through our shul and our community in the way we are. So we can get started with the fact that the, the coronavirus, as you know, has, um, it did start in China. And the first cases actually probably started around December 1st, even though we only really heard about it um, January 10th. Um, but we, we, have a, we have an idea that the first few cases actually started December 1st and began to trickle. And then most of the cases that we saw came out of the Wuhan market, um, but not necessarily that they originated from there, but that's where the um, epidemic kind of was at the center. And it was um, on January 10th when the virus was actually identified and sequenced. And that's when we discovered that this virus that was causing a certain set of symptoms in patients was what's called a coronavirus. And a coronavirus is named that because its outer shell has a series of spikes that when you look at it under the electron microscope, it actually looks like it's a crown. So that's what corona, it comes from the word crown. So the coronavirus is actually the cause of 30% of, of the common cold. So before we heard of the coronavirus, when I heard coronavirus, I, I thought cold because so many of our colds are caused by coronaviruses. So God forbid someone has a cold, they go to the ER, they have a respiratory test. One of the tests is a coronavirus, a certain strain. That's not what this coronavirus is. It's a, a mutated strain that actually is um, very similar to the SARS coronavirus. Um, so there's the coronavirus causes both SARS and it causes MERS, which was the Middle Eastern respiratory virus. Um, and both of those are related to the coronavirus family. So this is a new coronavirus. It has two names. It's known as COVID-19, and that was the name that was given by the WHO, which stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019. And then the virology overseeing um, organization named it um, the SARS Corona 2, which is because it looks, you know, genetically very similar to the SARS Corona 1. So it has two names, but we go by calling it the COVID-19, the coronavirus disease of 2019. So that's where those two names come from. And what we found is that this virus is isolated. It has been able, we're able to pick it up, usually from the lung and from the bowel. It hasn't really been found in the nasal washes. So we know that it really infects people. It's causing more of a lower respiratory disease, not so much an upper respiratory disease. Upper respiratory means nose and it means larynx. 
So we're really seeing symptoms that are cough, fever. And the cough is usually a dry cough. It's not a wet cough. So the major symptoms, again, are fever, chills, and cough. And the cough is a dry cough. Although there are some people that have maybe more mild symptoms that look like the common cold, so a runny nose, um, things like that. But really the major symptoms, like I said, are cough, dry cough, fever, and chills. So who is getting this and how, how is it infected? So as far as we know at this time, and things are constantly evolving, and we're just getting data out of China. We're getting data out of Italy. There are case reports coming out, coming out all the time. We're always, every hour, we're learning more and more about this virus. But we think that this is caused through respiratory droplets, and it's caused by touching. Um, so we want to be very careful. Um, the people that are getting it, um, the disease are ones that they're getting it from symptomatic people. So it doesn't seem that it's really being passed from asymptomatic people, but we're not totally sure about that. So it seems that people that have the symptoms are very contagious. And so you want to make sure that you're avoiding people that are coughing um, and that have fever. Those would be those signs and making sure that you're practicing very safe hygiene of washing your hands, not touching your hands to your face or to your nose, and to be practicing safe distance from individuals. So again, what is the rate of infectivity and how do we know how contagious this is? And let's go to the scary part, how fatal is this? So we're gathering the data of how infectious it is based on how we test for it. So testing has been so varied throughout the world. Um, we have countries like China that didn't do as good of a job testing it up front, and then you have countries like Korea, which are amazing examples of getting testing done. So we're not really knowing how infectious this is if we're not testing as many people as we can. And that has been some sort of like a downside in the United States is that we haven't been testing as rigorously as we should be. But we have picked it up and we're starting to test and test even more. So in the last, say, six weeks, we've been only testing by sending samples to the state. And those people that are being tested are going into the hospital. And based on the infectious disease control, if they meet the criteria, then they would be tested. So the rate of infectivity and the rate of fatality is only as good as us knowing who's getting infected and how many people can get tested. So countries like Korea that are testing tons of people and we know how many people are getting infected, then we, we can then calculate how many people are actually dying from the infection. So for instance, if you have only a few people being tested or infected, and you have a lot of people that are dying from it, that's a really high fatality rate, and that night, that's a, that's a skewed number. So what we learned is a funny situation, which is the Princess cruise ship, which is sort of an unethical situation, but we tested all the people on that cruise ship. And interestingly, a lot of the people on that cruise ship weren't exactly the normal population, but they happened to also be a little bit more askew 
and they happen to be older people because older people like going on cruises. And we found that um, of the people that were all, all people were tested, um, that 760 people were infected. So that was about 10 to 20% of the people on the cruise ship got infected. And less than 1% of the people died. So that's kind of giving us, it's a low fatality rate. It's about 1%. So we have learned that the virus is, as, is more infectious than influenza. Influenza is usually one to two people will get infected from an infected person. This one is about two to three. It's more infectious than influenza virus. Um, but we think based on the numbers that were coming out of China and other countries that are doing very high um, levels of testing, that it has a fatality rate of 2%, which is still a scary number. And we really need to think about those populations of people. So we've come to understand that 80% of the people that get this virus have very mild symptoms. And thank God it has spared children under nine years old. So children from zero to nine, they have not had any fatalities. Um, so 80% of the people that contract this virus, I think that is very reassuring to know that it causes mild symptoms. And mild symptoms can mean flu-like. That's not so mild, but flu-like, which is like, you know, painful joints or pain, um, fever, uh, little mild cold-like symptoms. Um, and then so that would be, you know, you, you're, you're feeling symptoms, you get tested, you're positive. Um, and in that case, you would need to stay at home, not go to work, and quarantine yourself and your family. So the other percent is you have 15 people, 15 percent of patients or p people who get infected will have more severe symptoms, and that will require hospitalization. Then you have 5% people who not only are hospitalized but are in critical care, and those are going to be patients that will require intubation. And then you're going to have a, a, a certain population, 2% of the population, that they have found that the, it is fatal to them. And they're finding that it's not just you know, 24 hours, these people are hospitalized for a very long period of time from six days to 41 days. So it's not overnight. So they're hospitalized and, and they're in that severe case and unfortunately they succumb to the illness. So the patients that have been falling into the more severe and the fatal populations are, are individuals that are over 60 and tend to have underlying comorbidities, underlying illnesses that include cardiovascular disease, diabetes, underlying respiratory diseases, and cancer. And really those are the populations that we take care of and treat very, you know, delicately to begin with. But those are the populations that we are very concerned with. And that's why we want to practice very safe hand hygiene, and preventative measures because we want to make sure we protect the individuals in those populations from not contracting the disease because they are at higher risk. So with that, what, what do we do at this point? Well, it looks like when we look at China, and it's a little bit different of a 
um, population assessment, we could see that they started really getting the disease, we'll say mid-December, late December, and we're just seeing a fall in the number of cases. So if you can just imagine right now, we're looking at a curve that's very like a bell-shaped curve, and it's very high peak because the Wuhan population is an urbanite population that they really a very condensed population, apartment-like city living, and they have a very robust um, transportation. So the spread of the virus happened very quickly with them, and it wasn't contained as rapidly. So you see this very high peak, and it falls down, and you see the distribution happening within about two months. The difference between that and what's happening in the United States is that we have a much more dispersed population. And what we think is going to happen is that the, the, the distribution is going to be the same amount of cases, not peaking as, as quickly and as rapidly, but it's going to be dispersed a little bit longer. So we're probably going to see that it's, we're at the steep rise right now. Unfortunately, our country is at the rise of the curve. It's not going to peak as quickly, but we're going to see more of an extended distribution because of the way we've come and tried to protect ourselves through um, rapid quarantining and different bans. So the mathematical concept of what we think is going to happen is that this is going to probably extend, you know, up to eight to ten weeks. So you, that, the, that we're going to have to be protecting ourselves during that time. Now, the question is, you know, does this act like flu? We're almost out of flu season. Will we be seeing coronavirus leave? We don't know. We know that the southern hemispheres, um, that's where we get our knowledge of how we're going to anticipate flu season and where we get our knowledge in the formation of vaccines. We know that the southern hemispheres are experiencing coronavirus right now. So that means that they can withstand the warm seasons. So I have had many people say, well, will this go away in the warm weather? The truth is we don't know. But we do see that it is in warm weather right now. It could be because there's contamination and the whole world is infected right now. So it might not be accurate to say that this exists in the summer weather. But as of right now, we do see it is there. So we, what we're thinking, though, is that this will extend um, about eight weeks, and, um, and then we'll start seeing a fall. Will it come back again in the fall, though, is a question. So maybe it will drop in the summer, and then we get a rebound of this. So the next question that comes to mind is how do we treat this? Well, right now there actually isn't a definitive therapy. There are some things on trial but there is nothing definitive. I did see today an article that talked about that the antibiotic hydrochloroquine may actually show some promising data that it could help in, um, you know, helping with this disease. But again, we're not really sure. Um, they're looking at maybe using patients that have had the disease and taking out their plasma, which have those antibodies to help neutralize or attack the virus. So that would be somebody, if they're familiar with um, 
uh, IVIG. It would be that kind of idea where you're taking people who have been exposed to this virus and giving them the IVIG. That's one idea that's coming to mind as well. And other um, other drugs that are, you know, they're, they're trying to think about it. They're in the trial stage. Really, the only cure is going to be a vaccine, um, but we are some time away from the vaccine. Um, the vaccine is um, really more like six to 18 months away, and that's because they are in the preclinical stages of it. Um, there are clinical trials that are registered through the NIH, and they're currently getting ready for the phase one trials, which will take about a year because unlike influenza, nothing has been modeled yet for the coronavirus, um, and the process has to be developed for this new type of virus. So that's why it would take 6 to 18 months. A year, I think, is the best average. So at this time, um, we're trying to practice this idea known as safe distancing, um, social distancing where we don't um, interact with others to prevent the contamination and the risk of spreading the virus, like I mentioned, to these more delicate um, populations that are at, at higher risk. Um, also remember, it's so silly, old-fashioned, washing your hands for 20 seconds, pick your favorite song, sing it twice, the chorus, make sure you rinse the back front of your hands and in between your hands. Make sure you definitely do that um, every time you're about to eat because you really want to avoid hand-to-mouth or hand-to-your-nose. Um, also, try to clean your surfaces. I have heard that the virus can actually stay on surfaces to up to three days, but most people are saying um, a few hours or even up to nine hours, but I have heard it can stay up to surfaces for three days. So I would just recommend, even if you don't have fancy, you know, antibacterial wipes, just to make sure you're cleaning off your counters. So with that, I'm going to um, put myself, um, or I guess I'm, I, could, I could open up for any questions. Um, I think I have given a, a pretty good background of what's going on. Um, at this point, I guess to say that we, um, we do have two positive cases and a few um, pending in St. Louis, and I do think it will be just a matter of time where we start seeing additional positive cases because I have many pending cases at this time. Danielle, um, yes, can I jump in? Um, yeah. Um, and thank you for that <clears throat> brilliant um, overview of what's happening here. I'll tell you what is on everyone's mind, and that is several things. If you could just jot this down, and I'm sure everyone else is going to want to know this. Well, the schools are closing as of tomorrow. Um, we don't. The reason that's happening is because children spend seven hours a day under the same roof. They play together. They touch each other. They eat together. Um, what would be the best advice to mothers? You're a mother of small children yourself. Yeah. What to, uh, how to, and my question is not so much how the mothers can keep their sanity. That's going to be a very difficult yeah. thing to have the kids underfoot. But just in terms of their friends, play dates, um, you know, how to deal with the children, that's number one. Uh, you, you know, are, are, are parents expected to keep their children in their house or in their backyard for, uh, and not to take them out anywhere? Could they take them to stores? Uh, number two, in your email you mentioned not to have Shabbos guests 
uh, that um, that is something I want you to expound on. I don't want to talk about you know having guests over your house, and uh, I guess the socialization here is something that we are interested in hearing. If you can address that, I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions on that. Sure. Every I think we should be taking each day as it comes. Um, I would I would definitely say that the next two weeks are are going to be very important two weeks in terms of controlling the virus within our community because now we are starting to see positive cases. And as I mentioned before, this virus is is very contagious when you know you compare it to influenza. It's um, it causes an infectivity rate of two to three people, and so um, it can mushroom very quickly. I think that it is what we're trying to do is to eliminate any chance of trying to cause this to jump from any person to any person. And I would definitely recommend just keeping your children within your home at this time, at least for the next two weeks, and then see how things progress um, day by day, week by week, um, until there's further stability and control over the situation, because I think we're at a, a pretty critical time right now. I do believe that Hashem is creator of the world and that he created this virus and he's already destined for each viral particle to fall where it needs to belong and we can't control that but we do need to just do our hishtad list to prevent any particles from going where they shouldn't go so that's what i would say for now i i myself i have six children um from 5 to 14 and um it will be difficult tomorrow morning i go back into the trenches to the hospital and um everybody's pain it's going to be a rough two weeks and um but i think that's the that's our hashtag list to do right now just to prevent people from getting infected because we really want to protect the people that are most at risk and would you say with regards to shabbos guests that it would be difficult or near impossible to maintain the spacing Especially when you're eating and there's, you know, there's, there's, there's droplets and so on and so forth. What is your feeling about having people join your Shabbos table? From yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I, I, I don't know if anybody has been in this situation yet, but if you just think about um, passing around a plate of food, that every time a person, you know, touches that plate, or even you have a child that puts challah to their mouth and then passes the plate. It's just, it's really hard to contain um, unless you are serving people plates of food. But as you mentioned, even that distance and you know, it's very, it's very hard. And I, so I think just during this challenging critical time, it's, it's best for us to just try to maintain that um, social distancing until we feel more comfortable that things are getting more control. Okay, I, I'm going to rest my case and let other people chime in here. How do you unmute again, Danielle, if you can tell everyone how if to If you unmute. have a question, um, please unmute and please say your name and your question. How do you unmute? Um, please unmute by pressing star six. Hi, Danielle. This is Yehuda Raskis. Um, I wanted to ask, 
uh, are there any known cases or, uh, well, not known cases, but any cases presently being tested in this area in University City at this time? I am, I am not aware of any cases within our community, and the truth is under HIPAA, I wouldn't be able to say either way, but I think that it would be a concern, you know, to know who has been tested positive or not, but as far as I know, I haven't heard of anybody having been tested. Thank God. So, Danielle, Danielle Sorry? Hi, Danielle. Kamen, I have a question. I have a question here. Um, what about going to stores and, you know, getting food or going shopping or other things like that? What would you say as far as that goes? Yeah, that's a great question. The question is about um, going shopping. I would um, I would keep shopping to the bare essentials. Um, just get I would just be buying things that you need to keep the home running and for meals. And I would only send one person out at a time. When you go to the store, I would bring your own bag. I wouldn't use the shopping carts. You know, hopefully, I mean, unless of course you have so much food, but to wipe down the shopping carts or make sure that you, um, you know, wash your hands very well or if you have a hand sanitizer. Um, when you walk into the house, just make sure you wash your hands very well. You, definitely you're going to have to go to the store, but I would limit the number of people that go and limit your interactions. Thank you. Um, Devorah uh, yeah, Simon, uh, what about children who are coming back from Israel and other communities? Should they have more precautions than those of us who are already living here? People that are coming from high high rates of the pandemic, which are listed on the CDC, should um, pay more precautions. They should um, look for symptoms. Symptoms can come about within 14 days. Um, so I, yes, I think that more precautions should be taken from people who have been traveling from very high risk areas. Is Israel a high risk area? No, not that I know of. No. Okay. Uh, Danielle, this is Hillel Abramson. I have a couple of questions. One is if there is a medical test that someone can put off, would it be advisable to put it off not to be out even in medical uh, settings because of possible exposure to germs. That's question one. And question two, if Hospital someone does get this virus, how long do they need to quarantine for? So to answer their first question, which is, should we be postponing elective surgeries? I would say yes. Postpone any elective surgeries that you can. Um, I think that most hospitals are going to actually do it whether or not people want to postpone them. Um, from the transfusion perspective, we are going to come into a critical shortage shortly, and um, they've, you know, they've suspended blood drives, and that puts us at a, going to be putting us at a critical shortage just for our major traumas and our hemon patients. So, what about like colonoscopies? Um, we wouldn't involve blood transfusion just because of the exposure. I definitely would still just postpone it. If there there's okay. no real critical reason to have surgery, you should definitely postpone it. 
okay. postpone your exposure to the hospital. Um, the healthcare workers are going to be people that are at high risk of, of getting the the virus. We know that okay. we've seen that in in Italy. We see that in China, and so it's going to be a pretty buggy place. <laughs> okay, and then, then the second question: What about that? The the length of the quarantine for someone who has contracted it, Hasbushalom. Right. So that's going to be based on your symptoms. And probably something that you're going to have to work through your health care provider. But people okay. can be um, quarantined in their home, you know, for 14 days or longer just based on their symptoms. Okay. This is Jonathan. Sorry. Hi, Jonathan. First of all, a, a great job in, uh, in, the, in the summary of the status. So thank you for that. Uh, that means a lot to me. My, my question is, is there any reason to believe that um, people who are not particularly at risk, um, that there's either a lower infectivity rate? In other words, you know, the, the, the injunction for people over the age of 60 not to come to shul at this stage or children younger than a certain age, um, what about the rest? In other words, isn't part of the goal here to try and... Uh, uh, reduce the, uh, the the contact and therefore keeping the uh, keeping the, the virus alive and in an endemic area. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about. Yeah, that's a hundred percent. I think the question is, please tell me if I'm wrong. That no matter if you're a high risk or low risk of getting this disease or having symptoms of this disease, isn't the point to try to keep from being infected? Correct. Is that right? So the answer is yes, and that that is the point of maintaining social distancing is that this this virus is causes two to three times infectious rate. Again, that means that a person, even if they're asymptomatic but has the virus, can spread it to two to three people, and that person could spread it to another two to three people, even if they may not be showing, you know, severe symptoms. So the point is to, yes, to decrease the amount of interaction with people so that you're decreasing the infectivity. So that is that is the goal. That's the idea of social distancing is you could run into someone, you don't realize that they're sick because they don't show severe symptoms. Hi, Danielle, this is Yochanan. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Yeah, thank, thanks so much. Um, I'm wondering, given that the virus can survive on surfaces for hours to perhaps a few days, what about using public sedurum at shul and other sforum at shul? It seemed to me we might need to be very careful about about that. I'm wondering what you think. Yeah, I think it's a great, great question. The question is, should we be disinfecting, wiping down, or even using the the sedurum? the public sedarum in general, um, I, I think it's a great question, and uh, it could be something that we could take an extra precaution and not do and ask people to bring in their own. Also, just touching, you know, the, the tabletops, the tables. Um, I remember just last week when we were there for the Megillah, I was freaking out. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, I'm touching this. But thank God, you know, I don't think we were at that crisis yet. But, yeah, it's... It's something to consider. Thank you. Danielle, this is uh, Brian Glazer. Thank you. 
Daniela, um, what about- do you hear me? Ella? Yes. Hi, I'm just going to answer Mr. Glazer's question. This is Frida Zuckerman. Daniela, I have a question. Go, go, there are go so ahead. many ahead, different opinions about the masks. Somebody says that it's necessary to have it. Somebody says that it helps uh, absolutely nothing. What is your opinion? You know, even if they help, right now is so uh, uh, sold out everything can uh, substitute it. So the question is, should should we be wearing surgical masks, or what what should we do for pr- protective equipment? So I think that if you are in the high-risk category and you are interested in going to the supermarket to pick up things, um, it would it could help you or it could be safer to wear a mask. Um, so I think that if you're in the high-risk category, I would advise someone to wear a mask if they are going out. Um, but, you know, the, the masks really um, are to be worn by healthcare workers, and if they're worn properly, then they can protect a person from the disease. Um, the uh, what, what I have only, you remember this is from the um, paper which usually used when it's uh, not uh, flu but something, I'm not sure it will help. What do you think? So the N95 masks, um, they're, they're in a lack of, there's a shortage in them and they're really being utilized only by the physicians that are going to have be intubating patients and have more exposure to the respiratory droplets. Other healthcare workers are just going to be wearing the regular mask, and they feel that that's safe. Um, Danielle, this is Brian. Um, so Hi, Brian. the question was, in terms of kids uh, playing outside, like kids playing soccer together, if they're not touching, give concerns just in terms of mommy sanity, um, getting kids outside, getting some exercise, would that be kind of a low-risk activity? Playing, are you saying just with your own children or with other children in the neighborhood? Uh, two questions, good, two good questions. <laughs> So the question is going outside and playing outside. Again, I think the social distancing standards have to be maintained within your own family and play dates need play dates indoors and outdoors. So I think getting exercise is fantastic and you know, but I don't think that we can apply social distancing standards that are different from indoors to outdoors. Um, Daniela, hi, this is Yehuda Raskis. I have a follow-up question. Um, What's going to be as far as, um, and I don't know that you're necessarily going to be able to answer this question, but I think it needs to be asked, um, with positive COVID patients, what's going to happen with Taharas? I I can help answer some of those questions, um, but I think that Rabbi Greenblatt does have protocol on that, and um, I think that the OU has provided some information. Yeah, about I've given uh, <clears throat> protocols um, 
to um, um, Corey Fredman, and so she's going to be advising the Masaskim. If you are a Masas, if you did not get this, I think she got it first this morning, or she was supposed to get it this morning, uh, so you can consult with her. Okay. Now, Dan, Abramson, one more question. When a person's, like, blowing their nose, okay, so um, if they, let's say, to use two tissues or a thick napkin or something like that, do they have to wash their hands every time they blow their nose? I mean, like, what are the guidelines as far as that, those types of behaviors? Yeah. Or if they yeah. cough, or so if they coughing, yeah. Yeah. So I think at this time it's really just to be as safe as you can, and every time you blow your nose and every time you cough into your hands, you should wa- um, you should wash your hands or use hand sanitizer. You will be preventing the 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 virus from spreading. Okay. Uh, hey, this is uh, um, hello. I just hi. I it's Nina Glassman. I just wanted to answer that question about the Taharas. NAF National Association of Public Kadisha um, has an email that was sent out. Yes, Panina, Panina, this I sent those NAF guidelines to Corey. Do you have them as well? Yes, I do. Okay. 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 Very good. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this is uh, Ezra Abramson. Uh, so hey, Ezra. I, I wanted to. Hey. Hey. How you doing? Uh, great. 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 Uh, you know, uh, great information. Really. Really. Really appreciate everything uh, that you and are doing here. Uh, I just wanted to kind of uh, cover two things uh, really quickly. And the first one, I guess, is something that other people might be wondering about as well. What is? Uh, are there enough case studies? to effectively um, see, uh, you know, how pregnant women are affected uh, as far as stillbirths, defects, et cetera? Mm-hmm. As far as we know, coronavirus is not a teratogen like Zika is. Okay. We don't think that it causes any problems with the fetus or the baby. And we also don't have any knowledge that it causes infection through the blood supply, even though we are trying to... Um, prevent people with coronavirus from, you know, from donating blood. Okay. Uh, and then and then one more thing. I heard that there was a case, and again, I guess you could also tell me whether or not I should, I guess, believe everything I hear, but I heard there was one case in New York where an individual at the age of 25 had no underlying issues and wound up in critical condition, and the doctors were only able to pinpoint uh, the underlying condition of our, our RSV when he was an infant. And I wanted to know if there, were any, if there was any information that SLU may have obtained regarding uh, the mutation of this virus and, its, uh, and the way that it can react or trigger other, uh, you know, uh, former viruses that an individual may have uh, been exposed to. Okay, so the question is, can, can coronavirus cause other previous virus to manifest? Correct. As far as I know, uh, that it, can't, it doesn't do that. The only virus that I know that can really manifest itself that way is herpes or shingles virus. Um, I'm not really aware of RSV um, having a reoccurrence later in life. Um, okay. So once you have it, the body gets rid of it. Um, maybe they brought up the fact that the the boy had RSV as a child because he may have had some sort of lung infection or inflammation of his lung that led him to have underlying respiratory disease that caused him to have a more severe symptom later. 
like such Does as that make sense? Like such as right, exactly. Yeah, Danielle, this is this is David Greengard. I just want to add one more answer. First of all, excellent presentation. I want to add one other thing to the last uh, question. Um, every probably every day in this country in the flu season, there is a young, otherwise healthy person who will die from the flu. It's just not reported in the news. Um, it happens. Certain people have hyperimmune responses or unknown reasons have a decreased immunity and the virus takes hold and will kill an otherwise apparently completely healthy young person. That happens mice and beholium with influenza. It's just not reported in the news. So I don't, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, certainly we need to be careful as Daniela is saying, but I wouldn't necessarily, you know, now the, everything's under a microscope so that one serious case in an otherwise young people is going to drive panic amongst millions and millions of people probably unnecessarily yes this virus doesn't necessarily discriminate tends to stay you know be more aggressive in the elderly and otherwise weakened people but not exclusively and we have to all be careful because of that but i wouldn't necessarily so young people are not young healthy people are not immune but at the same point i wouldn't induce overly undue panic that there have been young people who have been fatally affected because that will happen like any respiratory infection. So that's what I want to affect. Yeah, I think that's a great point that every, the whole population gets infected, but there are ones that have more severe symptoms in general. Hey, Daniela, it's Yochavid Witten. I had a question for you. Yeah. Hi, Yochavid. Um, I was just, wondering, you know, we're still in flu season, kids are still getting colds and coughs and all that. So I know a big concern is overwhelming the medical system with this. So I'm just curious, A, like, should you be concerned if your kid has a cough or really only if there's a cough and fever? And B, is there a hotline or website to see like, you know, if your kid has this, you should do this? Yeah, there is. I actually, um, the question is, we're still actually at the end of the uh, flu season. You know, maybe my kid could have flu. How do I differentiate between the two? And I'd like to add one more thing to that, which is allergies. You know, we're about to go into allergy season, too. So how do you differentiate between allergy, flu, and coronavirus? So actually on the CDC, there is a great website um, or page that does talk about the differences between the three of them. I would say that at this time, if you think your child has flu-like symptoms, to kind of just assume that he should get tested for coronavirus, just because you want to make sure that you're catching it and quarantining your family if necessary and paying extra close attention. Is the, like, the biggest symptom, like, a fever, like any of those flu-like symptoms accompanied by fever? If there's no fever, would you say... You don't need to get them tested? So I think actually, even if you have cough, if you, if mm-hmm. a person presents or child presents with cough, even without fever, um, or has shortness of breath, you know, or having difficulty breathing, it can happen even without fever. Okay. Daniela, can Daniela. you tell us, um, you know, how does one go about getting tested? I mean, is it becoming easier now? Is it, are there sites... I mean, locations that we just you just drive by. I mean, just walk us through the uh, like walk your chevet through what she would do if she's concerned about her daughter who is presenting with one of those sy- symptoms. Now what? Call her doctor. Yeah. 
call, call the hotline? I, do you know like what we I can think do? the best thing to do if you have you know your concern and you have symptoms to call the hotline, which I could provide you the number. It's the St. Louis County Health, and they will provide you with um, <laughs> the the best place to get tested. Um, Mercy has, um, well, SSM Hospital, they have a great website that gives you um, just a free online screening. So what it does is you go to their website and you they ask you a few questions and then they'll help you predict if you're a mild, moderate, low-risk, high-risk person that, for coronavirus. And based on that risk, they will advise you where to go to get tested. And I know that Mercy just developed a... Um, drive-through testing service. Now, their testing is going to be much more readily available. So, for instance, at our hospital, we're now sending tests to LabCorp. Um, that's a major laboratory. Um, there's going to be quests, so more testing will be available. And our hospital this week will start testing in-house. So any inpatients or healthcare workers will be able to be tested at the hospital lab. So major academic hospitals will be able to test at their hospital. But what I would do first is I would call the hotline and see where you can get tested. But if you feel like your symptoms are more severe, I would say go to a hospital and they will test you there. Daniela, I said a graph. Hi, Debbie. Um, my in-laws are in Florida right now, and we're debating how they should get home between flying or driving. And is driving safer, or do you have to go through rest stops, do you have to stop, and they're older and being in the car for a long time, or is it more? Uh, is it way better for them to drive? Flying is way riskier. Good question. Is should you travel through? Train versus car or plane versus car? But plane. Yeah, that, that is a no-brainer. Um, the Going on a plane is much more risky than going on a car because okay. of the amount of people that you can be in touch with and the risk of contamination. People have been okay. known already to get the virus just through travel. Okay, yeah, so... Rebecca. Sorry? I, I have a follow-up question. question, if it's okay. Sorry, I just had one more Debbie, question. Debbie, did you have your answer? Did you have your question answered? I'm sorry, Debbie. I, I, I have, I'm trying to get my daughter home from Israel, and she's flying to JFK. So there's, two, there's JFK and a bus and then a direct flight home, or JFK and two two flights home. So... What do you think is the best thing to do for that? Again, I, the, the most direct would be the, the best way to avoid as much travel Even though she'd be possible. going on the bus from JFK to LaGuardia, do so you think I should change it? Oh, she would have to take a bus? That kind of is a, a one, a two-way also. Yeah, there's no direct from JFK to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, but this, out of the airport, which is a, which is a long wait to get out of the airport, and then get on the bus to, to LaGuardia and then take the direct flight home, as opposed to staying in JFK but taking two flights home. Yeah, that's kind of like half of one, six of the other. Yeah, that's what I, I thought, too. <laughs> Thank you. 
Can I ask a follow-up question to that topic? Please. Hi, it's Rebecca Danielle. You're doing a great job. Um, what about all the families who are bringing children home from Eritrea and they could potentially have been infected there or contagious? What are we as a community going to do when all those children arrive? How are we going to provide for maybe some sort of self-isolation or quarantine from those children within families because you could have one person infecting four or five others? I just think as I'm listening to all my friends desperately trying to get their kids home, that there has to be some sort of protocol within our community to say, hey, your child came home. Perhaps these are the actions you should take to protect the bigger group in your house and then the bigger group in your neighborhood. Yeah, I think you bring up a great question, Rebecca, which it was someone did ask some, something similar, um, you know, as we're starting to have yeshiva students come back mm-hmm. um, as, as schools are suspended. Mm-hmm. and people traveling at this time. Um, symptoms of the virus can be seen up to 14 days of mm-hmm. becoming infected. So that's the time period that people are being quarantined from travel. So mm-hmm. I think that that would be the safe period of time where, you know, you have someone come home and then you say we're going to just casually monitor you for 14 days or have that in mind. And once they get through that time, you could say, quote, they're safe and they probably didn't get infected during travel or before then. But in the interim, two weeks hanging out with their brothers and sisters is what concerns me. Uh, that That's yeah. very hard. Yeah, that yeah. is. Dana, sorry, my green light again. Uh, you know, I agree. Is it a foregone conclusion that two people in the same house uh, well, if one person is infected, the other one will get infected. Is it possible to maintain uh, separate bathrooms and be very, uh, very rigorous about different, you know, towels? Um, I mean, in other words, I, I know it's going to be very, very difficult. Is it even possible to emerge uh, after 14 days that someone has corona that other people will not catch it? Is it possible? I definitely in the same think house? it's possible. Of course mm-hmm. it's possible. Yeah. I, th- I think, uh, Rebecca, I, th- I think we're all going to, I mean, all, many of us are going to have to deal with that when kids come home, that we're just going to have to, cre- you, know, it, you know, just map out, you know, how we're going to live. Yeah, and that's just the one to make sure that was in people's minds. Towels, everything. I just think it's, we need a very close, uh, it, Daniela, it might not be a bad idea just to kind of give it some thought and maybe send a directive, because I think so many of us are going to have kids who are coming from the East Coast and or Israel with us in our homes. I'm not talking about our married kids that live in other cities. That's a different story also. But I'm talking about the inevitable, you know, arrival of our kids. So mm-hmm. we have to exist in the same house somehow. Would it make sense to have healthy homes that where you would send kids to other uh, families that were non-infected families so that they could be able to um, preserve that status? I mean, the question is not what's possible, Yehud, it's, it's what's highly, imp- things that are sometimes so highly impractical, it just won't be done unless, and if it, you know, unless you're going to say if it's in, impossible to be under the same roof, that's one thing. But I'm just trying to find a way with some practical guidelines how we can maintain, uh, you know, just a, a, a family running, running together in, in such a way that those who are not infected will remain healthy. I mean, I, 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 I'm in this position now because we brought Yehuda home. Mm-hmm. And 
he could have been quarantined to the guest bedroom, but I'm just monitoring him. But I, I am monitoring all of us. Um, so just doing the best we can. He's definitely not eating outside of our dinners, and he's engaged with all of us. Anyway, I'm going to have to get off this phone call myself. I just yeah, want to, uh, you know, uh, be Messiah to conclude, Danielle, by thanking you so much again for giving your time. And Can I ask one more question? And thank you very much, and it was very inf- um, informative. I-, I would also just want to say that, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. It's a Sunday night. We've got a couple of weeks yet before but we can convene. We can have other, uh, t- you know, time allowing, Danielle, if we can have maybe – uh, you and I will be in touch if we want to open up another line of communication maybe towards the end of the week or if we think that there's some critical information that we have to share, if we could possibly do this. In any event, whoever else is on the line, just keep looking at the Shul emails. We're going to do the best we can to keep everybody abreast of what we think is the best uh, information possible. So, Lila Tove, everybody, I've got to go. And it was nice being with you. Good night. Good night. Thank you. I'll stay on for another few minutes, um, but I also will have to leave shortly. Danielle, this is Perik Schlossberg. Hi. I had a question regarding, um, I'm still expected at work this week, at least for the time being, and uh, our our daughter goes to Colrena. We're not sure if they're going to be um, stopping school like the, you know, like Tour Prep and other schools in the community have. Um, do you have any guidelines uh, if we should... I, I work in schools. Um, I work in a daycare right now. So, um, it, would you have advice about whether I should be taking a sick day and not going into work and keeping our daughter home, just to not be exposed to other children right now? Yeah, the the idea is to try to um, really restrict as much contact with other people at this time, just non-essential contact. Um, I think really the only essential contact we have that exists anymore is the healthcare workers and, you know, maybe stores to, to, for food and things like that. Um, I'm surprised that they haven't thought of suspending the school for the time being. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I can understand your trepidation that they're not going to, but maybe they will, maybe they will catch on. Yeah, hopefully in a few hours we'll get we'll get some calls or something. But thank you so much for your answer. Oh, my pleasure. Hi, Daniela. Betty Ozar. Hi. 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 Thank you so much, uh, Daniela. My my elderly mother is asking: Should she have people coming into the house who work for her? She's not able to, for instance, do her laundry and should. Should people be bringing in their babysitters and their their helpers, especially for the elderly? That's a great question. I would restrict it to the few number of people as possible and make sure that they maintain very strict hand hygiene at the time and monitor them for any symptoms. Okay. If be very mahmir about that. Okay. If people have... Uh, regular babysitters who would take care of their children who are now off school, should they mm-hmm. be allowing their regular babysitter into the house? I think, again, I think that that would be okay, especially if that person needs to work and it's going to disrupt their livelihood. Um, and But just, to, again, make sure that those individuals 
that they're, you know, really you look at their signs and symptoms before they walk into the house. Just be rigorous about it and just let them know that if they have any, you know, hesitation that they're not feeling well, that they're not to come. Okay, thank you. Can I ask a follow-up question to you, Chavid Wooten? Sure. Okay, so, hi, Kate. I just have a question. Now, let's say kids have coughs. Kids have, you know, these are common things that they have. And I feel like my, I'm just concerned, like, bringing kids or whoever to get tested or going to a place where a lot of people are thinking that they might have it. It just seems like a very scary place to bring people when it's a very, very low you know, when we just have no idea, and it's probable that they don't have it, we're bringing it to a place that's a very high risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bring up a good point. Like, our children have coughs and sniffles all year round. Like, how can you tell they're sick? Um, I would say that this would well, be I a Well, I think a further yeah. point is that happily to have they're sick, and just to check just in case, could be worse. I'm asking them not checking because we're bringing them to a place that's flooded with people that think they're sick. <laughs> well, that is a good point, especially when you go to emergency rooms. But but what but what the good thing is now, like St. Mercy's, they have a drive drive by facility, and a lot more centers are being opened up that are going to be drive through facilities, not drive by, but drive through facilities. So you won't have to interact with other people. Okay, that answers it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I'll take one more question, and then I'm going to have to go myself. Um, hi, this is Josh Bregman. I'm just uh, I'm curious, how does it work with, um, and I've heard, I think I've heard conflicting things, so I'm just asking from your, your experience and your understanding. Um, with, let's say one lowly should get the uh, coronavirus. How does it work with developing antibodies and becoming immune to it in the future? Excellent question. So a person who does get coronavirus has a very robust antibody response, and that antibody response can help to fight the infection, and then you become immune for life, apparently. So you won't get the virus again. They haven't been seeing people with secondary infections. Okay. Hi, this is Yossi Florence. Um, Hi, Rabbi. Hi. Um, I want to work backwards for a minute. For example, like Purim was uh, just less than a week ago, and we, we had a number of people at, at our table, as probably many people did. If tomorrow, let's say, one of these people that was at my uh, at my suda tests positive, what, what is the you know, the procedure for all those people that were at my suda? They considered higher risk. Should they themselves go uh, get themselves tested? I mean, they're all feeling fine. But if Chasr Shalom tomorrow, one of them calls me up and says, you know, I was at your seder, at your Purim, and I, I woke up with a fever today, Monday morning, and I went, got myself tested, and I'm positive. How do, how do the, all the people that that person has been in contact with, is it everybody that sat at his table in shul uh, are considered risky? Is it uh, everybody within two tables worth? Or how, how do you work backwards in terms of who should feel unsafe? Yeah, so Purim is now... How many days? It's 10 days behind? Oh, yeah, I mean, it can, be, it can be Friday night meal also. If I had people at my table Friday night just two nights ago and everything was well, fine, it was an assumption. And, but, uh, you know, on Tuesday, from the, two days from now, they, they call me up and they say they woke up with a fever and I just want to let you know because I was at your house four nights ago. 
Yeah, that's a great question, which is if someone you were exposed to in the last 14 days now is positive for the coronavirus, should I be concerned and should I be tested? And the answer is yes. You should be concerned and you should be tested. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Daniela? Yes. Can I Frank? Can I call you afterwards? I just have a quick question. I'm not going to spend, rather not ask on the phone this minute. Is it okay? Sure. And with, and yeah. Which number yeah. should I call you on your cell phone? Is that okay? Yeah. That would Thank be fine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Good evening, everybody. I recorded the the, the talk tonight, so. Others can listen to it in the future. I wish everybody a safe week, and Hashem should watch over all of us. Good night. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Hello. Hi, it's Hindi. Anyone on? Hello? Hello. Hello. Hi, it's Mimi. Hi, I think we're being recorded. I don't know if this it's the same oh. conference call number as before. And oh, it that's just said okay. Do you know how to turn off the recording? There's a way. I actually have Is that Walmart right now? Oh my gosh. Hold on. I'm gonna look up how to unmute how to stop the recording. Okay, because I it's free Who else is on? Who's on? To stop the recording, the host hits star nine. Okay. 